This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, a career that revolves around eating, studying, and designing food. Sounds just too good to be true, right? Well, for our next guest, it's a dream she made happen, thanks to her determination and boundless curiosity. I'm so excited to welcome Linda Monique onto the show today. Linda's the founder of Ammo Milk and winner of the 2017 Telstra Victorian Young Businesswoman Award. I'm thrilled to talk to Linda today about how she uses her curiosity as a driving force for her life, how she found a way to make even tastier and creamier almond milk, and the challenges she created when founding Almond Milk. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now Post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Linda Monique. Linda, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Very exciting, really. I'm excited. It's just (laughs) awesome. Podcasts, love it. Love that. Oh, so glad. Well, look, um, Linda, you and I recently connected over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome stuff you're doing and what you've built with Armo Milk, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you. I love LinkedIn. It's such a great connecting tool and uh, it's amazing where the world takes you sometimes using social media and all these online platforms. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Linda, a founder of Almo Milk. It's an Australian-grown almond-based beverage company. We produce and manufacture Australian-grown almond milk, working with 140 growers. Um, So Almo is one of my babies, but um, in short summary, me, I'm a creative at heart. Um, My place in this world is about bettering everything we do, finding unique opportunities, collaborating, connecting, and um, really that's essentially what I do. Whatever role I take, whatever business I create, I will always be that creative at heart. 
Oh, I love it. And it definitely comes through. I think what you've built so far has been absolutely incredible. And I want to dive deeper into it. But before I do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? It's a really telling question because as soon as I start thinking about my parents, I, just a cheeky smile pops up into my mind. Um, my parents, both migrants, really hardworking, came to Australia with nothing and really forged their own careers. However, they had their day jobs, which was mum was a nurse and uh, worked with cardiothoracic surgeons. My dad was an engineer and uh, during the day and after hours, let's say, they had separate passions. So my dad, after hours, was a photographer and also worked in hospitality a lot. So he was a head barman at the Hilton in Melbourne, um, and he's been photographing all of the major events in Australia and Melbourne for the last 25-plus years. So that's his sort of side hustle, side gig. Um, Mum ended up um, competing with all the doctors um, at her work and going, well, I need to provide for my family. I want a better education. What can I do? So she actually owned an art gallery for a period of time, um, sold and haggled art um, here in Australia, as well as starting property development. So... Took a big risk, bought a corner block of land, um, developed some townhouses, and there's a nurse doing her side hustle. <laughs> so my parents have both really explored their own interests um, on the side, and I think that really is sort of telling in my sort of scheme of things where I grew up always with a side hustle with three gigs at once, you know, um, exploring different um, opportunities wherever they presented themselves. Oh, I love that, and I think that... I love asking that question because I think that it's so telling, you know, what our parents have done and how subconsciously you probably didn't even realise it, but because they were always doing their side, side hustle, you know, you probably thought it was normal and that, of course, you're going to go do that even when you're working a full-time job or whatever it is. I love that. So, look, I want to dive a bit into kind of your high school days, into university and your decision to kind of study Bachelor of Com and Bachelor of Arts at, at Melbourne Uni. You know, talk to us a little bit about that decision there and, and what your high school days were like for you. I really think about high school as coming out. I was always an introvert and um, let's just say debating, I think, brought out the best in me <laughs> and sort of that tenacious nature and willing to um, pick a good argument <laughs> But I had to sort of grow up a lot in my high school days. I actually took off. Um, my mum actually shipped me off to France for six months and my brother to Japan for a year. So <laughs> we were basically um, exported out of this country and told, the world's your oyster, make what you want of it. And uh, so when I got back from France, it was an amazing experience over there. I learnt the language, threw myself in the deep end, had to sink or swim, um, but had these incredible experiences. But when I came back to high school, I was really isolated. I felt different. Um, and funnily enough, I always connected with really smart kids and found myself <laughs> hanging out in the library, being a yes. library assistant. <laughs> so I was an ultra nerd um, 
And I loved it at the same time. And I embraced being different. Mm. So for me, that was really um, high school years where in some ways I already felt like I outgrew high school. I wanted to escape. I would wag school sometimes and just <laughs> hang out in the cemetery around the corner with a friend of mine. Um, and even took up some university subjects whilst in my final years of high school. But I unfortunately got very sick when I was 15, turning 16. Um, I developed an autoimmune disease. And sadly, that was just um, bad timing. I thought I was going to study medicine. Um, always, always really wanted to go down a really academic path. Um, and so the fact I couldn't actually um, do some of my exams, I just had to wing it, really. and think, well, what's, what's a degree that will really give me a broad range of experience. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I think even in this day and age, 65% um, of jobs in the future aren't even created. So I think it's a bad question to ask anyone really is what do they want to be when they grow up? Um, and so I think degrees like commerce arts, so many subjects that you can take, you can explore different avenues. Um, and that's a time for you to just really discover yourself. So. University days, loved it. Melbourne University. Um, I spent a year at college. That was almost like being back at school. And I thought, <laughs> why am I here? Um, but the most compelling thing that I did whilst at university was do an exchange program to Italy. Mm. And in Italy, was studying at a business school, which I had never really heard about, but ended up being one of the best business schools in Italy, focusing on design subjects. So everything from fashion design, industrial design, and we got to take on writing blogs and exploring any aspect of design. So that's exactly when I really found this love of food and design and was like, is there such a thing as food design? Could this be something? Started researching on the internet, found some amazing designers in Amsterdam and the Netherlands. I thought, okay, there's something here. It's worth exploring and um, continued on. But university years was always two or three side jobs, tutoring, lecturing, um, hospitality work, and um, really sort of discovering um, myself. Mm. So interesting, I think, that seeing your... As I did see that you'd done some time in Milan and then I think it was London also a bit later. But I was uh, I was just like, oh, my goodness, it, it makes a lot of sense as to how you kind of... Weirdly, at the time, it probably didn't. <laughs> but looking back and seeing what you're doing now and, and the experience you gained, I can definitely see how that kind of shaped you. I think that travel in itself, I was also fortunate enough to study at a school at in France in high school, um, only for a period of three months, not six, but even still that time there, it, I think it almost does just shape you and, and you're thrown into a foreign land, you know, foreign people, different language. And I find it so interesting that, that you had that experience backed up with the Milan experience. So, I mean, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are looking to kind of, perhaps they're afraid to kind of give it a go in a new city or to try that different subject or to do something a little bit different, what advice would you give to them? I think put yourself 10 years into the future and look back at yourself and really think about not only the risks it might take, but also the missed opportunities you might have and whether or not you'll look back on your life and think about, was that something that I wish I did or wanted to do? 
Um, for some reason, I think genetically, I'm missing that risk um, risk gene where you literally stop and go, no, that's too risky. I would jump on planes without any cash, without knowing anyone in a city in London. I would find literally accommodation that night off Gumtree, tell, yes. tell the host, like, I'll paint the place if I can stay and put a roof <laughs> over my head. Um, I think you've really got to embrace um, freedom and opportunities, especially when it comes to travel. I think they're some of the most enriching um, character-shaping opportunities. I could not agree more. Talk to us a little bit about your time then in Milan and when you were exploring, and then after that when you were exploring this idea of food design. You know, what, where did that take you and what did you learn about yourself and the world around you? Mm, well, it all started with taste and curiosity. So um, before starting my exchange program, I ended up lecturing and tutoring these two amazing girls um, from Milan, and we were living for the summer on the coast of Italy in oh. a, a beautiful village called Santa Margherita Ligure. And I walked down to the bakery and tried this amazing focaccia, and it's focaccia you've never had in your life. It's <laughs> mind-blowing. And then I try pesto, and I'm like, this is so different. Why is it different? What makes this food different? Um, and then throwing myself into Milan, understanding the culture and traditions. So they have um, this culture around aperitivo, and that's five o'clock, you buy a drink, it's eight euro, you get a buffet worth of food, and that's what university students live off. <laughs> um, but you question and say, why does this even exist? Why is aperitivo so culturally entrenched? Where did it start? What makes it great as an experience? Why do I pay 40 euro for a Wagyu beef burger at Nobu in Milan as opposed to um, eating a one euro cheeseburger? And I sort of started analysing things very differently. It was just that curiosity um, around food. I also just wanted to discover and understand what makes places successful. And I think the Italians do it, absolutely. They've got a lot of amazing things around coffee and culture, but actually understanding um, the past is really important for seeing opportunities for the future as well. So that curiosity, I just let it sort of develop and that turned into a blog um, and topped the class and my university professor asked me to come back after finishing university and teach food design at uh, another university in Milan called Naba. So a really cool design school. And so I just had fun with these students, product designers. I said, photograph fridges, talk to me about how you pick food. Let's play with food, let's explore food from all different angles. Fascinating. I think that the question I want to ask around this is that that curiosity that drove you to actually further explore and then, you know, top your class and then and, and whatnot, where do you think that comes from for you? And do you think curiosity can be something that you can develop? Mm, I was always a curious observer and I think it's something that can be developed mm. and encouraged. I guess we have to ask ourselves, why are we curious? Why do we strike up a conversation with someone, um, a stranger in an airport lounge? Or why do, we, um, why do we question certain things? And I think 
figuring out and listening to yourself deep down, there is perhaps a purpose. And it's amazing how circular this world is and how um, cyclical things are, where you might meet someone 10 years ago and all of a sudden they pop back in your life for some crazy reason. You never thought they would connect. We are so connected. And I love connecting stories to people, to ideas, to thoughts. Um, it brings joy because I think that creates value. It creates synergies. When you can connect people, you can connect ideas and provide insights. I think that's what I do deep down um, is finding those little ideas and those gems just through curiosity and connecting and exploration. So valuable and I couldn't agree more. I think when you start to take note of how it actually all connects, you realise that we are does connect so much more than perhaps you thought it did. Whether it's an idea, whether it's an industry, whether it's a problem you're looking to solve or whether it's a network of people. And so I find that really interesting. So I want to kind of dive a bit deeper into your time in the UK, I think you had after that business, after lecturing, um, and then kind of the idea for Alma Milk. So London was a jolt response for wanting to leave Australia. And there was a few reasons why. Absolutely loved food, cooking, design, but didn't see an industry here in Australia or a graduate role that would really harness and champion that. There was a point where I really, really wanted to get away from the food industry. And secretly, I was on MasterChef season one. I don't put that on my LinkedIn. No way. Um, I was... I had just come back from Milan. I was just recovering after being really sick in hospital. And I thought, let's discover what food is. Um, I spent a lot of time working with amazing chefs in Melbourne, but also saw a really dark side to the food industry and hospitality industry. And it just didn't connect with my values. And so there was this real disconnect and dislike for what the food industry stood for here in Australia. And uh, being really young, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to embrace Europe. There's a lot more opportunities out there. And I'm actually just going to let the universe find me an opportunity in the UK. Um, I went over uh, originally for a master's uh, program at St. Andrews. Clearly didn't have the <laughs> 40,000 pounds worth of cash and thought, okay, that was clearly a bad idea, not thought through. But it was an excuse for me to land myself in London and actually get over there and just figure out a plan. Mm -hmm. Worst graduate unemployment rate in the history of like London. It was over 50% unemployment. Oh. Didn't think it was going to be that hard to find a job, but it was. Um, so I side hustled some hospitality gigs. Funnily enough, I worked for Thomas Keller, an amazing US um, Michelin starred chef who runs French Laundry. So they did this incredible pop-up at Harrods. Again, I was analysing, why is this so amazing? What makes these pop-ups awesome? How can companies utilise that? Um, and then eventually landed, um, just through sitting in a cafe, meeting some Australians, uh, landed a role working for a high net worth individual. So we won't really go into that person, but let's say I was uh, a consultant, personal assistant, <laughs> private chef, hustler, you know, uh, running after private jets and <laughs> just, 
doing all sorts of crazy stuff you can only just um I don't know if you can even imagine but uh that was one year of just hustling Mm. but I found a lot of free time and I think free time is the best thing where you let your mind wander again discover London go right maybe I should do some collaborations so again uh connecting back to London um and also Milan, I was exhibiting and working and collaborating with a few companies for Milan Design Week, London Design Festival, and even did a TED Talk soon, uh, or TEDx in Amsterdam, so a world without chocolate, just because I thought, hey, I've got free time, let's do some random stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. And I think that when we allow ourselves to just be creative and just uh, give ourselves that free headspace and time, whether it is even just on the weekends or, you know, whatever time we can afford, it really can spur some, you know, unexpected things. And I think I think there's also another thing at play there. I think it's your ability to grab opportunities, even when maybe they don't exist, like, you know, half half the country's, un- you know, their un- unemployment made for graduates there at the time is really difficult. So how can we be better at creating opportunities for ourselves? Especially when the economy is a little rough and there's employment issues, that's when we're put under pressure. And when we're put under pressure, whether it's financial, um, career-wise, personal pressures, we start to think outside the box. We think differently. We don't always evaluate opportunities based on the financial payouts. Um, And there then becomes this just opportunity to really think differently and connect and explore and maybe make time to sit down with people and have a coffee and um, ask how you can help them or how you can collaborate and how you can create something together. So um, again, simply through a network of individuals and discussion and exploration of food design, um, ended up working for Hyatt Hotels, their designer brand Andaz, and doing a Um, what we called scrap lab it was using all of the waste materials from the hotel food scraps and turning them into byproducts and unique uh, value-added offerings so it was just simply going right I've got free time let me explore let me connect let me have interesting conversations Um, And let me put myself out there. If anyone needs help, this is what I do. Let me offer my time at at no cost and see where that leads. And so sometimes just putting yourself out there to the universe, to your network um, and being of help can lead you into some incredible opportunities and um, really take you on an adventure. So (laughs) perhaps that's why my my CV, my resume is so (laughs) non-linear. (laughs) But we love that. (laughs) Very cool. I want to jump back to what you talked about, um, your desire to leave Australia for the UK. And you 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 mentioned that the scene here in the the Melbourne food scene, you saw the dark side. What did you mean by that? And in in what way did that kind of anger you? Definitely um, women and young females in hospitality, uh, treatment, basic respect really just Mm. culture culture is so fundamental and so important for companies and organizations 
Um, there was a lot of drug abuse, a lot of um, general management abuse and um, sort of, I wouldn't say dodgy business, but certainly um, we hear of issues with pay and um, without going into the details, uh, let's just say it's something that's not sustainable long term. The hours apprentices work, uh, the way they're treated when they make mistakes. I mean, it's brutal. It's it's rough. And yet somehow we championed a culture of aggressiveness, of um, language that's not acceptable, um, just so we can produce food on a plate and mm. and put our egos on a plate. And it just... Ugh, it just grinded me in all sorts of facets and forms and it's really sad but there is so many um, young people that get deterred from following their passions and dreams because they've had such rough experiences in whatever industries um, and in particular hospitality was one of those industries that um, really didn't set standards around culture and fostering growth and nurturing and self-care. It was the opposite. It was self-abuse. It was selflessness. It was service. Um, and it was doing things at all costs to perform. So uh, really thought this is not for me as much as I love the hospitality industry. I was born and bred in it. My parents, you know, from a young age would take us to places um, and show us how to set tables and know how to serve someone. That love of hospitality and service was so contradicted by what I saw in, in the Melbourne restaurant scene and really didn't want anything to do with it. Sad to say, I've still sort of come around over the years <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's yeah. like you can run away from your passion <laughs> and say, right, I'm going to go into the extreme opposite <laughs> corporate consultancy, <Yeah. laughs> become business orientated. But all of a sudden you'll find at some point in your life, you'll be thrown back into that um, vortex of uh, your own sort of destiny and universe and um, passions. Mm. I love it and I could not agree more. And I want to dive into that passion of yours that you circled back to. So if I'm not mistaken, you left the UK and then you headed, came back to Oz. I can't remember if the idea had already formulated, but it was it was definitely launched. Armamook was launched in Oz. Talk to us a little bit about where the idea came from and how that kind of, those, those and those like initial first steps that you took to get it mm. off the ground. Well... A dark side of my 20s was actually coming back from London. So I didn't want to leave London. Um, for me, it was a one-way ticket never to come back to Melbourne. <laughs> and I ended up getting stuck back in Melbourne. I wouldn't say stuck, but, you know, Melbourne is home. Mm. I have an autoimmune disease and, unfortunately, it got the better of me. So ended up in hospital, semi-dying, uh, feeling very sorry for myself and um, really struggling to hold a full-time job. And for the next two to three years, I kept deteriorating, um, hustled some consultancy gigs, worked some extra jobs and roles, and it just wasn't sustainable. And so I found myself bedridden, um, sick as a dog, going right. Um, lots of ideas, uh, a lot of intellect, this is all going to waste unless I do something with it. And being an observer, going back to the curiosity, just seeing what was happening in the food world, I 
spotted almond milk in the US and started observing and reading articles around how it was made and why it was overtaking the soy milk market. And I think another gift is spotting trends and that's simply out of curiosity and observing the world. So I saw a real opportunity for Almo and I think timing really does play an important role with launching a business. I hit rock bottom. I thought I had nothing else to lose and really thought I could commit myself to something. Commitment for me in my 20s was like, please, I'm not going <laughs> to commit to anything longer than six months. Um, and so for me, it was a big step forward in saying, yes, I want to create my own company. I want to do something for myself. I want to see if I can apply all of my knowledge and skill set into launching a product, even though I hadn't before. So again, this love of food, design, packaging, uh, positioning, marketing, positioning, combining all of that together really created Elmo and uh, started connecting people and realizing I knew some almond growers and uh, could travel around, find, uh, find manufacturing and pull it together. And so um, Elmo was born out of A, just timing a need for work and utilizing a skill set but also a frustration. And that frustration was health was soon becoming my number one priority, not just food and indulging in everything, but really understanding what um, food is as nourishment and nutrition and realizing there was actually no good almond milk out there on the market. Nothing that used Australian grown almonds. Well, okay, US almonds, shipping them from California, not so great, let's use Australian. And simple ingredients. I mean, you don't want to drink an almond milk with 12 ingredients. And I thought, that's not health food. That's not something that consumers generally want to consume. So let's create something and do it better. Super cool. And I think that so many so many of us, we fall into the things we end up doing. And I think at times you might think, you know, for yourself, it was, oh, what if I stayed in London and made that happen and I'm furious to be coming home and, you know, but it, it was almost like that was supposed to happen because this other opportunity that you once again created for yourself kind of arose. And so I guess my next question to you is, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who feel like they've got to make every next step right? And if they accidentally make the, you know, wrong career move or the you know, dive into the wrong business that everything's going to fall apart. Like what advice would you give to them? I summarize my 20s as being a a decade worth of uh, learning what I didn't want to do in my life. And it's amazing how sometimes taking on the worst possible jobs will actually teach you such valuable lessons and lessons that will actually become really relevant uh, when you do find the thing it is that you really do enjoy. I think you can only find that through discovery. And if you're not actually putting yourself out there and taking risks and trying different roles in different industries, you'll never really truly understand whether or not you've actually found what it is that you're amazing at and brilliant and talented at. So. I don't think anyone can find it from, you know, the chances of finding what it is that you're absolutely brilliant at and passionate at won't happen from day one and from the first role you take, really. So putting less pressure on yourself, but knowing that you're not here to, well, you're here on this planet to just experience 
And you're here to learn and grow from whatever experience you take on and not to force and be hard on yourself um, that you might not have found it just yet. So well said. I absolutely love it. So look, I'm super curious to dive into some of those early challenges of getting armor milk, armor milk off the ground. So, you know, you, you said you kind of found the supplies and whatnot, but how, what were some of the early things that you really struggled with? So immediate concern was manufacturing. <laughs> I know it sounds easy. Let's just produce almond milk. Let's find a facility that can make it. Um, it took close to one year to find a manufacturing facility that would make our almond milk. I almost gave up halfway because it was getting so ridiculous. I was door knocking, traveling to every state, contacting every dairy manufacturer. Either they didn't have the right equipment, they didn't want to support an almond milk company, or they just didn't want to deal with almonds because they are an allergen. So it requires some extra um, washdowns. So we ended up offshoring to New Zealand for the first two years of our business. Um, and sadly, just based on relationships and um, the work that was involved in New Zealand and relationships, we found ourselves moving manufacturing back finally after three years when we did find a facility back in Australia. Um, but it took such a effort. And it's sad to say that we have friends that run macadamia milk companies and they're farmers, and they ended up going to the US to manufacture their macadamia milk simply because Australia has a lack of manufacturing facilities. To set up a facility would roughly cost $30 million. I'm like, right, okay, cool, yeah, let's <laughs> Easy. Uh, get some funding. Is this really what I want to be doing <laughs> is running a manufacturing facility in Australia? Absolutely, there's an opportunity, there's money to be had, but is this my passion? Not really at the moment. Um, and just that was such a big struggle. Um, even before launching the product, we didn't even have a product, and it's like, okay, clearly this is very challenging. Mm -hmm. But once we did we had something very compelling that no one else had. We had different packaging. We could enter the retail space. We were the very first product made with Australian grown almonds. Unfortunately, we couldn't say 100% made, <laughs> owned and grown in Australia, but that was already an achievement in itself. Looking back, just being such a risk take, I thought, oh my God, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. And perhaps my lack of insight into the industry helped me just bite the bullet and take a risk. Huge, huge. And I think so many of us, when we start out on these journeys, we actually don't really know what we're getting ourselves into. But I think what often, I mean, in some cases, it's they get, they can't get, the struggle to get through those tough times at the start often ends in, oh, okay, you know what, I gave it a shot. I gave it a year or I gave it a year and a half or two years and it didn't work out, all good, I'm going to go back to my job that feels safe and whatever it is. You know, what What are your thoughts on, you know, how, do you, how did you stay motivated throughout that first year when you were trying to just get the manufacturer? You said you almost stopped halfway. You know, what did you do to kind of stay in the game? Mm. It's hard. Mm, I almost gave up. <laughs> I jumped on a plane back to London just to hang out with a friend and be like, what am I doing with my life? It's not working. Um, and then private chefing for some awesome celebrities and they're going, maybe I should do that. Um, but I think the universe just kept pushing signs 
in my face and to the point where I was like, I know, I've got to give this one more shot. I haven't explored every single option on this planet. Let me just give myself an extra three more months and if I can't find it, then I will stop. So sometimes, yeah, you, there will be opportunities that you do want to launch your own company and simply just can't find the networks or the people or there's something that just is not clicking. But if you explore all the opportunities um, and think outside the box and perhaps even connect with a network of uh, industry leaders or people that might provide you some advice, that might open different doors or you might even think about how you position your product differently or company or just transform it. And I guess part of what we do uh, at Almo has changed completely. Originally, it was meant to be uh, almond milk for the cafe market. That changed, it became a retail focused product uh, and the formulation changed and we changed so much. But that's probably to stay as relevant as connected to our consumers and to what the industry wanted. So. If you embrace change and if you look at your idea and you're not rigid and you can sort of manipulate and explore different opportunities or different formats or ways of shaping your idea, maybe that'll lead into something even better. And I think we often forget that. We think if it doesn't turn out exactly as we've envisaged, you know, how is it going to turn out? Um, how can we be more open to change? Ooh, like <laughs> internally reflecting, how can we be open to change? Change is inevitable. Change is inevitable in everything we do, in everything from our bodies to the businesses we create, to the products we consume, to our environment, to expectations, to consumer culture. If we are not embracing change, we are not being the best version that we can be. And it takes a lot of reflection and self-analysis to be able to embrace change, to accept reality, to accept facts, to want to be better. And perhaps maybe there is an ego attached to sometimes not wanting to change, thinking we are the best or we've created something and everyone should consume it. And no, we should always be listening to, and or listening and accepting feedback to really being aware of what is happening around us. So change at the moment, we're in this phase of the world where things are changing so rapidly and even myself, sometimes it's so hard to see how fast and absorb what is happening around us um, from our consumers to the environment to legislation. There's so much change coming from different angles. We simply need to be open to that change. And if there is a secret way of accepting that, I don't know, really. It's a, it's a such a tough question. Perhaps we all take it differently. Um, some people embrace that change, others are resistant, and perhaps we look at incremental and radical change. 
for businesses, sometimes it's about small baby steps. If you're a smaller company, yes, you can absolutely change things overnight. For a big company, you've got to get everyone's approval. There's politics and your ideas might be shut down before they're even born. So there's different structures, uh, different organisations and just how we both cope with change. So well articulated. I, I love it. And I, I think you just hit the nail on the head that we could either resist or we can either be open to it. And I think, you know, I think the more and more we're open to it, the more we start to see those benefits and we start to see the effects of us going, oh, maybe we could give that a go or maybe, maybe that could work. Um, so, yeah, I, I, really, yeah, I really think you've hit the nail on the head with that one. Oh, Linda, your story is so interesting and we could talk for days. Um, but as we come to the close of today's episode, I've got a couple of last questions I want to ask you. And one of them being, what has been one of your greatest failures to date on this entrepreneurial journey? Ooh, a failure. Love failure. <laughs> so much I fail every day. Yes. This morning I baked some muffins that failed epically. And I really <laughs> wanted to bake these muffins before I got into the office. And it was a gluten-free oh, vegan recipe. Yum. <laughs> I fail every day. I think there are things that I could be doing that I don't do. And that's perhaps out of perfectionism and wanting to be a better leader and a better person comes from a place of wanting to develop myself. I never assumed or wanted to become a CEO and managing a group of people. I've always been very individualistic, so I'm embracing team, team spirit. But in terms of failure, uh, I think being vulnerable is perhaps the most important thing you can do with relationships and the people around you. I, for a very long time, didn't know how to be vulnerable. I was vulnerable in my own skin, but I didn't know how to be vulnerable in relationships. It was hard to look at my flaws and share them with people and um, accept that. So failure for me was essentially not asking for help when I needed it the most. Um, and that was when I was sick in hospital uh, and ended up back at home with no support around me. I didn't know who to ask for help. I didn't know how to ask for help. And there is a point where I think we will all go through a moment of crisis, um, whether it's professional, personal, work-related crisis, and we don't ask for help. And that's probably the first thing we really should do is learn how to find a support network or find a few people that we really trust with confidence to be able to share some of that burden, that pain, and to figure out a solution. I didn't ask for that earlier on enough. And I went through a long period as an entrepreneur where I struggled. I think mental health, where entrepreneurship is a very lonely journey. And I became my own worst enemy. So I didn't ask for help. And that, for me, is essentially my greatest failure. Oh, the courage to admit that and bring that to the table. We so appreciate you sharing that with us, Linda. Well, look, the last almost five years for you have been, with Almo, has been 
huge. I mean, Almo Milk has gone from strength to strength to become an award-winning company that it is today. It's stocked in the likes of Woolworths. You yourself have been named the Telstra Victorian Young Business Woman of the Year in 2017 to 2018. Look, you've, it's, it's just so cool to see. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Linda, for all the brilliant work you're doing, for all of your failures and for all of your successes. You really do show us that if we have a passion or something we care about, we really can make it happen for ourselves. So we really appreciate you for that. Amazing. Thank you for your time. Of course, of course. So look, our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is... Da, 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 da. <laughs> drum roll. Literally drum, drum roll. <laughs> what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? The value is absolutely the destiny and journey and adventure you've always wanted to be on. It's amazing how Almo, for me, I thought that was commitment locked down to Australia and yet it's empowered me to travel around the world, to meet customers in Asia and travel to the US and discover the world. And that's what I love the most. So sometimes your passion, although you might see it having limitations, it will open up doors and experiences that you never imagined possible. So well said. Linda, ladies and gentlemen, where can people learn more about you and Almo Milk? So people can definitely stalk me on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, we have a website, almomilk.com.au. Not tickle me Elmo, but A-L-M-O. <laughs> and uh, definitely hunt us down on Instagram. We're always responding to customers and uh, friends and anyone else that reaches out to us. So love that. We will link them up in the show notes. Thanks again so much, Linda. We've had a blast. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at the Peers Project. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, Peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>